Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Woo! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. A conversation with Tim Pozar, the industry veteran from San Francisco, is on deck. Tim is currently the co-founder and vice president of the San Francisco Metropolitan Internet Exchange, also known as SF Mix. He is also a managing principal at 2P, which is a infrastructure and network engineering consulting firm. Uh, Tim truly is a veteran in this space. He's been in the industry since its inception many, 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 many moons ago. I came across Tim working with him when we were at the 200 Paul Data Center together uh, in one of his many ventures that he's had along the way. Tim is one of the most humble human beings I've ever met. He's also one of the most passionate and compassionate human beings I've ever met. And the stories that he has of how things got started back in the day in San Francisco for uh, the the internet are, are pretty fascinating along with what he's working on now and how the man became Mr. Pozar. I think you guys will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, here it is. Mr. Pozar, thank you so much for joining us on the I Love Data Centers podcast today. <laughs> Good. I love geeky podcasts. <laughs> well, this is most definitely a geeky podcast, and I greatly appreciate uh, not only you taking the time, my friend, but just being being a resource and a friend of mine for, I guess, the better part of almost a decade at this point. Uh, it's been a couple of years, yeah. So, Tim, for the, the listeners here... I'd love for you to just give uh, a brief overview of who you are and, and what you're doing right now. Oh, my. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, it depends on how brief you, you have time for. Um, Let, let's so keep it as my... brief as possible because we'll dig into the details over the next hour. Okay. Well, um, there's a couple of things. I mean, what I'm doing currently, and we can take it, and I can sort of fill that out a little bit, is uh, I have a company called... Uh, 2P, T-W-O-P, because it's uh, a consulting partnership between Matt Peterson and I, uh, last name Pozar, um, and we're going around to um, enterprises, uh, large enterprises, and kind of small to medium-sized ISPs, and placing process and infrastructure in, or putting process and infrastructure in place so that they can scale to the next level. So, for instance, we've been hired out by ISPs to make sure that they have enough process and infrastructure in place so that they can 
go from a standard ISP to becoming a CLEC, to um, to going into enterprise and um, building out very hardened and secure infrastructures that can scale uh, and such. So that's my stick of late. Um, we can we can talk about the history, I guess, in, in the detail. Well, I appreciate that. Um, so. Tim, where where are you right now? I know you're somewhere in and around probably the Bay Area, right? Oh, I'm I'm at my home office in Mill Valley, California, which is a tiny little town. It's around fifteen thousand people. It's just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And didn't you spend a stint work living in Pacifica as well? Uh, no, I uh, well, let's see. Previous to this, I was living in San Francisco in the. Uh, What's called the Sunset District, um, which is the uh, the west side of San Francisco, for about seventeen years, and then um, and then previous to that, I was um, a broadcast engineer, uh, and I had worked up and down the west coast, uh, mainly in the Seattle, San Francisco, and Fresno markets, um, building out uh, commercial and non-commercial uh, radio stations. Gotcha. Um, it was the the West San Francisco address. I remember talking with you about the commute that you used to have going from from your home out by the beach on the west side of San Francisco into 200 Paul Data Center in San Francisco. Oh yeah, that would, that would get kind of crazy sometimes. Uh, they, uh, San Francisco traffic, and that was kind of during the heyday. Uh, that was the other tech bubble push. So we would have some really bad traffic trying to go across town to get to the data center. So. Are you born and raised in San Francisco? No, I was actually uh, born and raised in Fresno, and then I escaped Fresno when I was uh, about 18 or so and, and started. My first gig was uh, developing technology. I was, I was designing uh, test equipment for the original NPR satellite system, the, the original analog system that was uh, contracted out by uh, NPR to a company called Rockwell. And Rockwell subcontracted to a company that I was working for called Coastcom that was in uh, Concord, California. And so are you saying NPR, like National Public Radio? or? Yeah, that's correct. I'm sorry. Gotcha. Should have spelled that one out. Um, so, so if you so, remember, NPR had it as, as a satellite system, and I did, did the design of the first one. So if you started doing that at age 18, then you must have been pretty deep into technology long prior to that. What What was your first you know, for, foray into the world of electronics and, and geekery? Oh, I don't know. I, I guess when I was a kid, I, uh, the, I've always been interested in electronics. I mean, we had, uh, fortune, I guess our family was fortunate enough that, you know, for every two or three years, they would upgrade the TV set. And, and back then, you know, the technology was getting a bigger screen or getting a, a TV set that had remote control or getting a TV set that produced color. And things like that, and so um, the so every two or three years they would take the TV set, put it out in the garage, and I would take it apart and collect the components, and then build things out of it. So um, that was kind of my early <laughs> electronics days. Um, and then to educate myself a little bit more, there was a Radio Shack of these these kits. The original one was called the Fifty and One Kit, which was basically a board with a bunch of springs on it that you would hook wires up to and then there was a bunch of components on it and so you could build like little transistor AM radio or or um, you know transmitters or whatever else you want to do and then I so I had I had this inkling or 
or strong drive to go into electronics in general. So during, actually, I should say that I um, when I moved to Com- uh, to Coscom, um, I was probably more in my like around when I was like twenty or so. So I had graduated about a year early out of high school and started going to college. I had enough units to uh, to skip my senior year and went to start going to college and start on my EE path. And so um, when I kind of dropped out because I got this amazing job offer at Coscom, um, eventually I looped back and, uh, and you know worked on college. Um, the uh, it was it was too much of a too much of an offer that I couldn't refuse to particularly work on this NPR satellite system on the design of that. So um, I Tim, I knew you know I took electronics in, in high school and things like that as well. I I got to do this, Tim, and I I want I know uh, I have to date yourself here. So what what era are we talking about? Like what year are we talking about when you oh, were eighteen? I, gra- I, gra- I was graduated high school in seventy six. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> so you, yeah, no, that's actually a, probably a good point. The fact that this is way pre-internet. So this is, you know, this is when the the course that one would take if they were into electronics or into computers. And I was starting to get into computers too. I, I my first computer that I programmed was actually as kind of a super glorified calculator made by Olivetti. It was called the Programma 101, and um, you can, if you remember the early calculators you could do programming with, um, you had sort of like basic, you know, conditionals and steps and things like that. And it was basically a very large calculator that I could program, and that was in junior high school, I think, or something like that. And then the next computer I touched was a um, an IBM 360, where I was working uh, under a language called IPL. And then the next computer was in college where we had an HP 3000E, and I was working with uh, Fortran and BASIC and things like that. So we, uh, during that time, we ported what was called basically the Star Trek game to a multiplayer terminal so that um, basically HP 3000 had, um, you could support like 20 or 30 different terminals off of one of these things. And so each person would be a different character from Star Trek. You'd have a... Uh, You'd have the Uhura character. You'd have the you know the Spock character. You'd have the and they'd all sort of like do whatever they need to do to uh, drive the ship through Klingons and try to avoid you know getting wiped out and such. So I I and another person co-wrote a lot of that stuff. So that was my my early computer experience and such. And that sort of dates me a little bit, knowing what kind of computers I was working on. Were your parents in technology when you were growing um, up? No, but they supported it. I mean, uh, my dad uh, had a road construction company, um, um, but he was always very interested in, you know, new technology and such and how to, how to make his um, his company um, more efficient. So we had, I mean, he bought the first IBM 5150, which was kind of like a precursor, early precursor to the uh, IBM PC. Um, and... Uh, which ran basic and such. And so we did um, our job estimating on that and such. Um, even before that, he was in partnership with another uh, road construction firm, and they had the an early IBM computer that had literally plug board for programming. So it was basically a big 
board with a bunch of holes that you would do jumpers uh, to do the, the programming, and I got involved with helping uh, program that as well. So it's it they were supportive, let's say. No, that that makes sense, and it's it's a common theme and thread amongst the the people I've been talking to is they either have parents that were directly involved in technology or they were, as you're saying, just very supportive of it and, and assisting however they could uh, through, through that evolution and through that process at a very young age. Yep. So for, for, you know, for those parents out there, if you're wanting your kids to get involved in, in tech and understand it, you got to get involved early and often and be supportive through, through that process. Right. I'm a, you know, I know you've got a couple of kids. I've got three of my own that are, between the ages of four and 11. And uh, I remember teaching my son at age three how a data center worked uh, by trying to explain <laughs> the the power component of it and where all the power was going and where the power comes from. But Right. Yeah. So I'm actually uh, helping my son go, you know, learn Java right now. Um, I have one son. He's a, he's a senior right now in, in high school. Um, and so he's been taking AP uh, programming, and so we've been learning Java and together, because I'm more of a Python and uh, person. Uh, but uh, so I'm I'm getting up to speed on that. Right on. So I remember hearing you tell me a story about um, how you started an ISP, which may or may not have been one of the first ISPs in and around San Francisco. Is that am I correct in that? Oh yeah, that, that's uh, absolutely correct, and it was the first ISP in San Francisco. Um, we. Um, I had become, I mean, through my, my technology geekiness, I had uh, sort of a quick history. I, I had built early computers because, you know, we had this HP 3000 and I could dial into it, but I really wanted something at home I could, I could develop. And so um, I bought uh, an S100 based computer, um, which is actually what was called a vectors, vector graphics computer. It was a, and uh, I think I had a total of 4K of memory or something like that. Bought an early modem. Uh, wasn't it? Wasn't a haze. I think it was called a P, PMMI or PPMI or whatever it was. It was a 300 baud modem that I could dial into and be able to uh, get access to to things like bulletin boards and such. And then in early bulletin boards um, were things like CBBS, which is the Chicago Bulletin Board System, run by Randy Seuss and Ward Christensen. And that was kind of like the the main bulletin board one can connect to, and having having access to that, and then eventually having access to the early ARPANET through UC Berkeley. I had friends there, and I would go over and to Evans Hall and basically uh, borrow a, a terminal, even though I wasn't a student there, um, to be able to get access to ARPANET. This this whole thing just sort of opened up to me and said, "Wow, this is this is what can." can make the world a better place. Um, I had always been working on trying to help create what I call infrastructure for democratic communication. So starting community radio stations, um, eventually doing bulletin board systems and, and, and writing software to connect bulletin board systems to um, other networks like the internet and such. I felt that that was really important to have people have the infrastructure so that they can exchange ideas. I, I don't. I don't see it's appropriate that we isolate countries from being able to communicate with each other, uh, like we've done in the past. Um, for instance, during like apartheid with South Africa, we limited how research and education institutions could communicate back and forth with each other. 
And uh, I, there's another story about that I can tell you about, which uh, is rather interesting. But we, yeah, I so didn't have- dig into that because it's the first time I've ever heard of of what you're speaking of. How how exactly did we go about limiting that? Well, in order for us to put some pressure on having South Africa change um, its view or or implementation of apartheid, we had economic as well as um, trade and various other sanctions against South Africa. And this also came about as being that we could have certain relationships um, between institutions, um, particularly like education institutions and things like that. So it was kind of a a minor form of what we would have with more uh, well-known countries like the Soviet Union and such, um, with these trade sanctions and such. And what it, what it ended up is the fact that we would have um, limited, uh, again, communications or exchange of, of information between these countries, and we didn't think that was appropriate. So I and a number of other people actually just deployed um, software and bullet board systems in South Africa, and we've also done this in the Soviet Union during that time, to create these sort of underground pipes of communications back and forth between these countries that were more or less isolated from, like, the United States and being able to do these sort of things. So, for instance, um, maybe the statute of limitations has expired at this point. Um, One of the ways that Lawrence Livermore Labs communicated with um, South Africa was through my home bulletin board system. So I would would connect to Lawrence Livermore Labs uh, we would, uh, through what was called the UUCP protocol, we would exchange messages back and forth, and then I would forward those messages onto um, other bullet board systems, which would eventually get to South Africa, as well as other places and such. So this is this whole <clears throat> unofficial pipe that we were able to put in. It sounds like, is, isn't that similar to the Usenet model? Uh, Usenet was, is a conferencing system that sat upon UUCP. UUCP just basically defined a what's called a store and forward network where um, a machine would get some mail and it would decide that it needs to, where it needs to route it, and then would forward that onto another machine, which would say, oh, you know what, I need to actually route it to, the, to another location. So you may go through four or five or maybe three or maybe 20 machines before it finally gets to its destination. Uh, whereas on the internet today, you basically open up a connection and you're connecting directly to the place you need to go to. Uh, since the, uh, the these machines were not connected full-time to other machines, you had to do this store-and-forward uh, system. Gotcha. So I, I guess in the, in the context of Usenet, as I understand it, allows for, let's say, you know, Russian citizens or Chinese citizens or at that time probably, you know, South Africans to communicate without um, concern for, or I guess there's always some concern, but without complete worry that uh, someone's sniffing the line and watching the communication. Um, well, they, they, they still could. I mean, Usenet was, uh, Usenet was just a broadcast. In other words, if I, uh, UCP and was originally designed to store and forward files and mail. So you would write some mail and say, to Tim, and um, from your UCP node, it would get forwarded on to, you know, again, half a dozen nodes before it comes to me. 
And any place in those nodes, somebody could look at the mail if they really wanted to. And uh, this is later on, you'd have things like uh, Phil Zimmerman's port of RSA to create encrypted email and such. And that's because they were concerned about people who are, you know, with man in the middle sort of reading of mail and such. So if you can have an end-to-end encryption, you sort of avoided a lot of that. Usenet was a way of being able to post a message and have zillions of people read it because you would have a conference. So, for instance, one was uh, that I populated a lot was called dot, or BA dot broadcast, which is meant barrier broadcasting. So um, if I posted a message in there, anybody subscribed to that would be able to see that message. And it was just it, it was just a broadcast medium for conferencing. Gotcha. So how does that then tie to the ISP? Well, so Usenet, or UCP, Usenet sat on top of UCP. Um, eventually what happened is the, this concept of the of, of internet or the internet protocol and full-time connections came about. Uh, and so they actually had to develop new protocols to um, send Usenet conferences over this full-time internet connection. So they created a protocol called NNTP, which is Network News Transfer Protocol, which meant that um, you would uh, a machine would be able to connect to another machine and say, I have messages for you. And it would say, great, I already have these messages. Don't send me these because I already have them. And it would say, oh, well, but here's some new ones. And it would basically sync these broadcast messages back and forth. So it, it actually had to adapt to this new thing called the internet. What then got you thinking to yourself, I need to start my own internet service provider company? Okay, well, that's a very good question. Um, in many of the previous technologies that I worked with, um, again, broadcast, um, bulletin board systems, things like that, they all had their inherent flaws with it. Um, broadcasting meant that you were kind of limited by whoever owned the microphone and the, and the transmitter. Um, and so it wasn't a really true democratic way of being able to communicate. You either had to work out something with the program director or, you know, send in a letter that hopefully got uh, translated into uh, a comment or a show or something else like that. And then bulletin board systems were had a really sort of limited, and they were also very fragile distribution. Um, an early bulletin board system that actually had the distribution much like UCP was one called FidoNet, and that's the one I, I I used mainly, and then wrote software to connect FidoNet up to UCP, much to the chagrin of people on UCP. And then when uh, I started discovering about ARPANET and the Internet Protocols, I said, "Oh, this is great! It's much more real time. You don't have to wait a whole day for your mail to transit." Um, the world to get to the other side and then finally get a response back from somebody else, you know, 48 hours later, possibly. Um, you would be able to send mail in and then see a response 10 seconds later after. And I, I thought this, this, was, this was a great thing. Of course, this is way before what's called the web out there because, you know, the, the killer app at that point was Usenet and mail for the Internet. So that's, that's what jazzed me about it and the fact that I could... Um, telnet or log in to remote computers and use resources in real time as well. So in 1990 or so, 
um, a friend of mine who I had co-worked with on um, porting, uh, working on the UCP protocol and, and getting it working on bulletin board systems, and mine, and a guy by the name of John Gilmore, who eventually started like the EFF and other organizations, and a guy by the name of Steve Crocker. If you are an internet person, you probably know Steve because he's developed a number of the uh, standards out there. Governor John Romkey, a uh, bunch of other folks basically put together this collective because getting access to the internet was very difficult at that point, 1990. Uh, you, there's only one or two really commercial companies that offered, well, really only one you know, commercial company that offered access to the internet that you could get. And that was one called uh, UNet, started by Rick Adams. So we put in a, I think it was either a 56K circuit or a T1 circuit into um, UNet at that point. And we were ended up, I guess he was charging us like five or six grand for that one and a half megabit connection. And then, of course, getting that distributed to the rest of the party that wanted to connect, you do that through 56K ADN circuits, advanced network. Uh, advanced digital network. Uh, Real so. quick, Tim, let, let's go back just to put some context here. We're talking sure. five or six thousand dollars a month, right? Yep. Yeah. For, for a one and a half megabit per second connection to the internet. Yeah. Um, I think we were paying five. I know other people were paying six for the same circuit. And uh, one of the conditions, by the way, is that uh, that that UNet had was that we could not resell this connection. And of course, that's what we were doing. We had this cooperative where we were kind of reselling it to all the participants in the uh, in this cooperative. And eventually, uh, UNET um, got wind of this and kicked us off. Um, about the same time that they kicked us off, um, there was this company called Sprint who decided to get into the internet business. And their main hub was in Stockton, California, which is a bit of a schlep from San Francisco, but we ended up putting a T1 circuit in between our San Francisco office at that point. We had moved from, we had a Mountain View office originally, uh, and then we moved to the operations to San Francisco. And then we put a T1 circuit from our San Francisco office back to Stockton and started reselling bandwidth at that point, where uh, we actually graduated to, you know, having people being able to dial in with modems and uh, terminal servers and the whole thing. How would people get access back to their home from where you were picking up the service in Stockton? Well, either they would get a dead, I mean, if you're if you're flush with money like John was, John was like the fifth employee of Sun, uh, so he had a little bit of cash out. Um, if you if you're somebody like John, they would put a dedicated 56k circuit in between um, our router where we had the T1 back to their house. If you were a little bit more um, financially restricted than John, um, you would dial in with like a you know a twelve hundred baud or twenty four hundred baud modem, and then run what would be at that point either one of two protocols. One was called SLIP, S L I P, or Serial Link IP, and that was actually developed by Rick Adams at UNet. Or you'd run um, another protocol that would also go over telephone lines called PPPP. PPP. There's three P's in there. Sorry, and uh, that was uh, actually had a little bit more flexibility and actually became the de facto standard over SLIP. So if you remember early days of running Windows, where they didn't support IP, you would get this uh, 
this shim called Winsock that would actually do the PPP protocol over a modem and then be able to dial into your internet service provider like the little garden, which was RISP. So you definitely needed to have uh, some network and systems experience to understand how to make those connections happen. Uh, you couldn't, you know, it wasn't as simple as AOL, you know, just sign up and log on. Am I, am I correct there? Exactly. Um, yeah. it, uh, we, we tried to put documentation together to make it as, um, as seamless as we could for using Winsock, um, uh, for Windows and such. And of course, Linux or, or Unix or whatever, because, you know, other operating systems had their own ways of doing this. Uh, even Mac had a, a shim. Uh, that you could download. They had a TCP stack that you could download and, and dial up. So, and all of these were not for the faint of heart. Uh, and so there was a lot of hand-holding for people that were less technically savvy. But most of, most of the people who saw the value of the Internet at that point, and again, this is, we're coming up on 93 now, probably, where you're actually dialing in uh, at that level and Winsock is up. And so web browsers are starting to show up, things like Mosaic and such. Um, and so they're starting to get more interest from less technical people, and so there was a bit more hand-holding on that. Eventually, Windows incorporated the TCP stack. Uh, a friend of mine actually joined Microsoft and actually sort of like bent their arm to finally get that done. So he actually did the, the implementation for, for, uh, for Microsoft for TCP. And uh, but if, if you remember, Bill Gates was kicking and screaming about joining the internet in the early days. So there was a lot of people sort of left hung high and dry because of uh, Windows at one point. So in '92, how long were you running that uh, the little garden? It, so what happened is uh, I I started uh, actually uh, John and various uh, John Romke, John Gilmore, Steve Crocker, various other people put this thing together originally for in 90 to support companies like Cigna Software and, and, uh, and a couple other ones, FTP Software and such. And um, when John ran his circuit up to, his ADN circuit up to his house in the Ashbury, I placed a, a computer over there. Uh, it was a microchemist computer that was running an operating, or it was running an application called KMIQ, which was kind of like this free router, but it was originally designed for amateur radio. Uh, but it would support mode, so I would be able to dial in. So I was I was mainly the active guy who was developing the little garden at one point. And then I realized, you know, I couldn't do this and do I was I was chief engineer for a radio station or a couple of radio stations at that point. So we eventually hired uh Tom Jenny, um, who invented Phytonet. And Tom ended up being the manager and basically chief bottle washer for Little Garden up to a point where we sold it in uh, 96 to a company called Best Communications, which was out of um, Mountain View. Uh, at that point, uh, I think they had it for about a half a year or something like that, and they eventually sold that to Highway. Uh, and then that, or Highway? Highway? I can't remember the name of it. And that got sold to Vario, which eventually got sold to NTT. And so actually the the ASN, our, our autonomous system number that we use to broadcast to the rest of the internet that we had for Little Garden is actually what NTT is using today. So there's there's still some vestiges of, of Little Garden out there. That is definitely an interesting story. 
so you were working for an ISP. You have an understanding understanding of the technology and network and and how the internet as a whole works. Do, do yeah, you remember the first, first time you ever walked into a data center? Yes, <laughs> very distinctly. We I had no concept of what a data center was until we realized we needed to uh, when Little Garden had developed. Of a little bit further, where we realized we didn't want to be single sourced to just one internet service provider, and the fact that we actually had to put in, start putting in a bunch of infrastructure. Uh, this couldn't just be run out of somebody's house. We actually needed something hard. So there was a, a fiber company that was actually well known and well, uh, actually in rather infamous in the fact that how it burned out. Uh, called Metropolitan Fiber System or MFS, and they had um, developed, if you can, I can use in quotes here, a data center on the, I think it's like a 13th floor of 444 Market. Uh, 444 Market is now called One Fremont, I think, in San Francisco. Um, and this was actually literally an old office floor. In fact, it still had carpeting down and you know, kind of walls up and things like that. And um, one room was pretty much a dedicated phone switch. And that was uh, this is this company that was developing ways to get around long-distance uh, charges um, for European customers. So they were in one corner, and we got a, I think it was like about a 6 by 15-foot cage, literally with hurricane fencing around us, and then we were able to put up about uh, four or five or half a dozen uh, two-post racks in there. So that was kind of like my first look at a data center. Uh, of course, I've seen central offices before. I had I did, visited to those. Those weren't really kind of a data center, but what we patterned data centers after, or, or soon after, was the a lot of the standards that um, central offices used. In the fact that you'll see a lot of data centers have negative 48 volt supplies, and they'll have, um, you know, this type of air conditioning and this type of, you know, infrastructure and hardening, like um, not only battery but uh, UPSs and things like that. So a lot of the sort of the standards that we see in the current data centers certainly have their roots in central offices and such. You didn't see a lot of that in the early data, the early data centers that I at least were involved with because they were. They were a little funky, and they didn't have a lot of telecom history behind it, and went the way they built it out. So that was that was my first exposure, and it wasn't a really good one. So it wasn't the uh, the Matrix experience, feeling as though you just stepped into you know a brand new crazy world of the Borg. No, that comes later when when Equinix decides to put purple lights all through their uh, their central office, uh, their uh, their data centers and such. Um, no, early early data centers were pretty crufty, and they were always you know nobody really sort of saw the need and the money come in for these kind of things. So early data centers were always sort of like somebody's closet or something else, and and they're maybe hardened by putting like a, an APC UPS at the bottom of a rack. So they were always nobody really sort of like took them really seriously at the beginning, other than. No, nah, it's a convenient place to actually put my T1s and my DS3 to be able to set up my routing and such. So we had a lot of outages at these places. They weren't what you call 
the DuPont Fabros or the digital realities that you see today. Gotcha. At, out of curiosity, you wouldn't happen to remember what that global callback service company was that was in the opposite corner where you guys sat? I'd have to dig it up. It, it, the, the, the scam was is that it cost more to call into the United States than it was for the United States to call Europe. So the idea was is that you would call into the switch, you would type in the number that you wanted to, uh, your, your customer ID or whatever, and then it, you'd hang up and then it would call you back and then you would be able to dial through. Yeah, ironically enough, I'm intimately familiar with that service. My uncle uh, was the founder and CEO of a company called USA Global Link that was uh-huh. one of, if not the first global callback company to exist um, and set up these types of uh, nodes all around the world uh, and was in the middle of raising a couple billion dollars to compete with MCI and uh, AT&T and whatnot uh, in 2001 when everything went to crap and uh, yeah. that, that itself is a, is a fun story, the evolution of that. But uh, I was just curious if maybe that, <laughs> that service in the corner happened to be one, one of my it, uncle's nodes. It could have been, but it's one of those sort of technologies that is trying to fix something that can easily be undermined. Well, in your case, it was basically the, the fall of the tech market, but it could have been just undermined pretty easily by somebody coming up with a, a long-distance service that basically was a much more reasonable cost as opposed to a monopolistic uh, long-distance service kind of infrastructure we had back then. Well, the kicker, and this is an interesting tangent, the kicker and where they were most popular was in the countries where you had monopolies on the telecom side of things. So the government-owned telecommunications industry who refused to change and that were just reaping massive rewards off of the fact that they owned everything and could dictate the price. Yeah, they, so those they are, literally those had, are great had opp- death. I'm sorry, those, those are great opportunities to look for for, op- for exploiting, but you also have to keep in mind that if somebody else comes in there and does it, you're screwed. Yeah, the, the other interesting thing is he had numerous death threats on him and his family from a lot of these dictators around the world because he was coming <laughs> in and being so disruptive with uh, – one of their major revenue streams. Oh, my. So what happened after, I know you, you were involved with uh, an, a email, uh, an email company. You know, you've, you've had a very eclectic, interesting background working both um, with the ISPs and the service providers as well as with some of the software as a service and, and related companies. So how did, how did you evolve then from the little garden to, you know, what was the next major chapter in the life of Tim Pozar? Well, there was a chapter in between that. Um, so, but I'll, and I'll just step on that really quickly or, or talk about that. Um, after we sold um, the Little Garden, I actually ended up uh, joining Best Communications um, for about three months there and um, realized that it was the upper management that was involved with it was um, not real competent. <clears throat> so I... Uh, I actually reached out to a friend of mine who was starting this company called Alexa, um, also Internet Archive. And um, this guy named Brewster Kale, and I said, hey, do you need some help over there? And so from 96 through 98, I was the director of operations for um, what's called Alexa, which eventually got sold to Amazon, and the Internet Archive, which was the non profit side of Alexa. So, so that, um, those are good good companies that I don't think very many people are aware of. 
Um, can you explain what Alexa did and does and what the Internet Archive is and does? It should be relatively oh, obvious, but I don't think very many people are even aware that it exists. Yeah, Alexa actually was pretty well known for the time, but for, for, for now probably it's pretty much, you, you may not know of it, but it's still in existence to, to some degree. Uh, Alexa first started out, and the idea was is that they really wanted to be able to do two things. They wanted to be able to sort of like index the Internet to um, not necessarily do kind of what Google is doing in, per se, but they wanted to be able to um, understand and create metrics of what who's the most popular website and be able to get uh, be able to sort of like tabulate that sort of stuff. And there was also some indexing involved, so you could sort of type in and search for things and such. Um, to be participate in Alexa, you actually had to install this little plugin to your to your um, browser, and it would sort of watch all the places that you went, and then report in theory, anonymously back to Alexa and tabulate this so that this is how they sort of like did page ranking and, and site ranking to to uh, to websites. Um, people started getting a little nervous about that, and so they started unplugging Alexa. But there was a lot of interesting IP that got developed on um, Alexa on being able to suggest, oh, if you like that site, you may be interested in these sites as well. And so eventually that technology got gobbled up by Amazon because they really wanted to be able to take that technology and put it into their shopping experience. Oh, if you like that number two pencil, you may like this pen or whatever. Uh, and so a lot of that Alexa technology is now driving Amazon. The, the Internet Archive was more developed to, be, to make sure that the firma that was on the internet got saved. So these, um, so one of the things that Alexa did would, would crawl websites, not only getting this information but for users, but they would crawl websites and scrape websites and then be able to index that. Um, these crawls would normally get compiled and literally sort of like thrown away. And so Alexa would basically catch the crawls and keep this and archive the crawls. So um, this was tons and tons and tons and tons, you know, gigabytes worth of data. I'm saying the internet back then, as opposed to petabytes and such now. So we would have uh, these large tape robots, these storage tape, storage tech tape robots that would um, archive and uh, this these crawls and put them on what's called DLT tapes. And uh, and then we created a technology um, or a product called the Wayback Machine, so that you could go to the uh, the Amazon, uh, the uh, Internet Archives website and say, I'd like to see what the Ford website looked like in 1997 or something like that. And uh, up, it would go back and grab that tape and spool it up. And then eventually, because we only had one storage tech robot, <laughs> it may be hours before it would actually return that to you. Uh, since then, they've gotten that a little bit better because the price of hard disk went much cheaper than putting stuff on, on tape. And, then, and of course, it's much faster. So when you go to the Wayback Machine on the on the, on the um, Disney uh, Internet Archive site right now, it's, uh, it comes up much quicker. But a lot of those calls that you saw, if you go to the Wayback Machine right now, were ones that I was managing and storing and such from basically 96 or 98 or so. 
I'll definitely put some of those links in the show notes uh, for people to check out. But I've I've used the Wayback Machine numerous times in the last God fifteen fifteen years. Um, some friends of my of mine and I started a, a company back when we were in college, so back in '99. And we always have a fun time going back and checking out what our site looked like in 2000, right? And just right. laughing at, you know, we had like a really cool script that would drop snow on the screen during the holiday season. So we always have a good laugh at some of the marketing campaigns and stuff that we were running online. Yeah, you should, anyway, you should go I, back I and look at what Amazon looks like and, and early sites that you know now, like Amazon and, and, and other sites. They, they were pretty crafty looking. Um, Anyway, yes, we we digress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you spent some time with the Internet Archive and Alexa. I appreciate you digging into that. And then, how how did you move on from there? Brewster, who um, again started Alexa and Internet Archive with Governor Bruce Gilliatt, had a previous company called Waze, W A I S, which is Wide Area Information Service or Searching or something like that. And um, I that's how I originally met Brewster through Waze um, because I. I had ported that software to um, a version of Linux, or excuse me, a version of Unix called System 5, which is the AT&T version of Unix. And um, one of his co-partners in Waze was a guy by the name of Dan Aronson. And Dan had started uh, with uh, with a couple other people a anti-spam company. Um, and this was, this was something that, Spam was a, was a particular problem for us in Little Garden um, when, in particular, because I, I'm sort of digressing a little bit to have you understand why this is so interesting to me. We started Little Garden when there was restrictions on what kind of traffic you could put on the Internet because it was run by either the military or the National Science Foundation, or the backbone was. And so certain content could not go over that backbone because of appropriate what was called appropriate use policies because it was being funded by the government. Um, I actually had to write a letter to the National Science Foundation and say, can I transit my traffic over this? And I got a letter back saying yes. So that was my, whenever somebody would complain about my traffic, I would be able to show them this letter from the National Science Foundation. So we decided when we created a little garden that we wouldn't have no appropriate use policy regarding content. We felt that um, anything that impeded on free speech is something that really other organizations should be involved with. If it was a, if it was a criminal issue, if it's, um, you know, whatever else, it, then, you know, the FBI should get involved or local law enforcement or whatever. But the, the Internet Service Provider should be considered more or less a common carrier. It should just be considered a pipe. This came to haunt us a little, you know, particularly at the end of the Little Garden when scams started to become more popular. Um, there was the Cantor Siegel infamous uh, spam that they sent out. There was a bunch of, you know, people starting to try to, you know, scam people as well as, as you know, market themselves. And so since we didn't have an appropriate use policy, we actually ended up being a place where a lot of spammers decided to show up. But we were still, you know, adamantly concerned about making sure that we had free speech. The r- real uh, quick, real quick. There's, I can guarantee you, there's a number of people who are going to be listening to this who've never heard of the the quote unquote infamous Cantor Siegel incident. What what was that? Well, that was basically a um, it was a law firm uh, that was in uh, gosh, 
from, I think it was in Arizona or something like that. And they um, they did this originally a, a spam on Usenet, um, asking if you were um, if you were in 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 a immigration problem or anything else like that. That we you know we'd be glad to help you represent you and such. And so this is this is one of the more early, even though it sounds relatively benign right now as a as a spam. This basically just rocked the Usenet and the internet community because of the the fact that people were doing this. There's actually earlier evidence of spam. There was a uh, there was a digital equipment corporation marketing campaign that happened um, even before this that uh, they got shut down pretty easily uh, uh, and, and shamed for. But the Cantor Siegel sort of ended up being the kind of the more infamous one. Uh, eventually. As I remember, Lawrence Cantor, who's you know one half of Cantor Siegel, went out and wrote a book on how to market yourself on the internet and such. So it was even he even basically not only after he got shamed for this, he he went out and tried to like sort of like build upon his uh, infamous nature and try to to market himself as a marketer. Gotcha. Appreciate you you tending to my my ADHD, but uh, sure. going going back to the the story. So you you're at the ISP. You've convinced the you know the the courts that you're just a, a dumb pipe, but then spam starts to become a major issue, and you start wondering, hmm, how can we manage and monitor this issue, which well, makes it, total sense, right? It, it, well, it's more you know we keep in mind that John Gilmore is is a bit of a libertarian, so he feels that less regulation is better, and so um, and we were all sort of signed on to this. I mean, Tom Tom sort of leans that way. I sort of lean this way too. You know, I really. Typically, and we saw this early on, this is one of the reasons that John started the EFF, is that the whole cyber realm or world or whatever, as you call it, that um, John Barlow sort of defined and in his manifesto was not really known well, and the whole concept of this sort of like borderless community was not well understood by people who were making laws. So typically there was a lot of bad laws that were coming out like that. And so hence, if you could stay away from the regulation, you could stay away from the bad laws. So John actually started the EFF in order to be able to fight a lot of the bad laws that came out of, out of, uh, out of Washington and, you know, mainly, and mainly the federal laws. And the EFF um, being the electronic frontier foundation and what, what, that's right. um, you know what? What's the mission statement for the for the EFF? Well, uh, actually, I'd, have, I'd probably have to look it up and tell you what the exact mission statement is. But it's basically to help fight bad regulations in the the whole cyber realm or community that you could you could call it that. And so they're fighting for free speech. Uh, and again, try to do this in a way that would sort of like limit regulation. So recently. Uh, the EFF has been involved with like things like network neutrality and such, and they've been trying to figure out how to do this without necessarily avoiding, like for instance, the Title II re-regulations of ISPs that the current the FCC currently the FCC is trying to change. They, you know, the current FCC feels that you know no regulation should be happening at this point, but. And I can tell you, we can go into the argument why I think um, we do need regulation. So the EFF was trying to figure out how to do this without adding more regulation. So um, actually, been, I was consulting the EFF at that point about more commercial solutions that, that could work on network neutrality and such. So they're mainly concerned about free speech and, and controlling bad regulations. Gotcha. So going back to spam. 
Yeah. So this was inherited in, in this is our main core. We really wanted to make sure that free speech was not, not an issue. And so spam started becoming popular. And fortunately, we sold the company in 96. So, hey, it's the next person's problem. But, um, and then I spent the two years in the Inner Archive Alexa. And um, Dan Aronson, who, again, I had worked with previously at Waze, um, said, uh, hey, we're starting up this company that does anti-spam, and it works this way. And the way that it works is effectively the recipient's machine or system would decide whether something is spam, and then you had a decision, and the recipient had a choice of whether they wanted to immediately throw this in the trash, review it, you know, just mark it as spam or whatever. And I thought this was a much better system than trying to regulate because it spam is is in the eye of the beholder. It's kind of like what was a, a famous judge who talked about porn is that it's it's objective or it's, excuse me, it's subjective on what is spam and what isn't, depending on if it's valuable information to you or not. And so we started this company, a company called Brightmail. Ended up actually doing quite well. We uh, we sold it to uh, we sold the services to companies like AT and T um, and a number of other mail companies and such. And uh, it actually became uh, quite popular, uh, and it was quite effective too. Uh, I developed a lot of the infrastructure for Brightmail. Um, I was mainly director or VP of operations for there, and so we had a we had these honeypots. We had millions and millions of email addresses that got donated to us that just basically got spam in. They would get collected in real time and we would have a bank of people that would look at incoming spam, tag it as spam, and then write rules and filtering mechanisms so that by the time it got to somebody's email box, it would either be marked as spam or, you know, again, deleted depending on what their options are. And that ran you from... From when to oh, when? Oh, that was uh, 98 to 2000. Jeez. Yeah, and then we sold the company eventually to Symantec. Um, I think that was about a, a year or two after that, we sold it to Symantec. So what were you doing then between 2000 and 2006 when, when I think we first met? Right. Well, um, for a short period of time, I was actually um, for a CTO of the EFF. For, that was lasted all of three months or so. And that goes into another story. But <laughs> So um, there was, I was doing consulting and such. And then eventually um, I uh, ran into a, an acquaintance of mine who had started a, an ISP way back when. Uh, and was actually a customer of Little Garden, and he had started a data center um, called United Layer, and uh, eventually <laughs> you and I met. Uh, and so I was an early investor in United Layer, and then uh, uh, I joined them in, I guess, 04 or so, and I ran through, I guess it was 2008, 2007, I was, uh, I was there at United Layer. Gotcha. And then where where did SF Mix come into to play? Were you working on that alongside the same the same time, or did that come after United Layer? That, that started in two thousand six. Yeah. Um, so this is sort of gets back to we're looping back to kind of the main the main topic here. The um, the concept typically in a data center, um, a the reason you go to a data center is you want to be able to go there for for a number of reasons. One is you want to go there 
because it, it's a hardened infrastructure. You are expecting a certain amount of uptime on power and air conditioning, and there's going to be a rack that you can put stuff in, and there's going to be certain monitoring and, and all the sort of environment that you you're, you can feel comfortable about putting your, your servers into. Um, typically, you have this, for some reason, you have to be able to, play, be able to plug into the Internet to be able to serve your content. So you'll normally pick a data center that um, is not necessarily served by one transfer provider. You want to be able to go to a data center that has some competition. So you're going to go to a data center that hopefully has more than one pipe to the Internet so you can you know, work out a, a competitive rate. Um, a lot of these transfer providers will come to these data centers as well as the content providers, uh, and they'll connect to a transit provider and such, but they may want to connect to more than one transit provider uh, to add in redundancy and be able to reduce the amount of latency that's going to be between their servers and the customer who's, who's going to be connecting to these servers. So for each time that you want to be able to connect to a transit provider, Typically, you'll throw another piece of fiber over a rack to wherever the transfer provider is. Uh, in some cases, uh, this you may have to go through what's called a meet-me room or cross-connect room where they'll patch you up and such. And this gets become a bit of a problem if you want to connect to a bunch of transfer providers to be able to have really good mesh to the Internet. People sort of think that if you just connect to one transfer provider, you're seeing 100% of the Internet. And that's not, not true. You may actually see maybe 98, maybe down to 95% of the internet. You may not see all the internet. So really by connecting to multiple transfer providers, you're, you're increasing the odds that you're connecting to more parts of the internet. And also, again, reducing latency and, and, and weird, strange round trips and such. So another solution, and this had happened originally um, back on the East Coast, there was a... Uh, there was a group of people, um, Rick Adams from UUNAT, uh, PSI, which was another internet uh, service provider on the East Coast and such. They said, you know, instead of having to throw fiber back and forth all over the place, let's actually just put an Ethernet switch in a location, and we just have to put, make one connection to that. And then for uh, everybody that also connects to that, we just make policy arrangements and type up a couple little keystrokes, and then now we're peering with the other people that are also connected to this Ethernet fabric or this Ethernet switch. So the concept of a Internet exchange really sort of came about with it, with uh, what's called the KICS or the CIX or the Commercial Internet Exchange that um, that started with Rick Adams and PSI and such in, in, the, in the East Coast. Eventually, this morphed into... Um, what's called the MAEs, or M-A-E's, uh, Metropolitan Area Exchanges. And uh, there was an East Coast one, there was a West Coast one. You probably heard of May East and May West. May West was located in, at NASA Ames in the South Bay and over here. May West was located, in, I think, in Ashburn, or maybe in some place in Virginia. And those ended up being very popular commercial exchanges as well. And those were also developed because, again, this is early early days, we were still dealing with appropriate use policies because we were still, there were still people transiting through the National Science Foundation network. So having you connect to an internet exchange meant that you didn't have to worry about these uh, appropriate use policies. Uh, so you didn't let, have to worry about some time frame. We say early days, early days meaning 1990s, early 1990s? Yeah, 
Early 1990s, that's correct. Yeah. The concept of, so this, that, so they were, they were pushed for, the concept of an internet change really was being pushed by a couple of things. One was appropriate youth policies, which eventually very quickly disappeared when, thank you, Al Gore pushed through some bills to make sort of like the commercialization of the internet. And then the fact that um, people really didn't want to keep throwing fiber over the fence. They just wanted to be able to do keystrokes and be able to uh, connect to everybody else that was on, a, on an ethernet fabric. So um, these things became quite popular. Eventually, they became a critical infrastructure for a lot of data. So Equinix um, has their own internet exchange fabric that you can go to. It wasn't cheap. It was, if you wanted to connect to like a one gig port, they would charge you, you know, five to 10 grand in the early days. So basically that bandwidth that you were pushing through there cost you at the minimum $5 a megabit or maybe $10 a megabit to push, push traffic through there. And of course you weren't using the full port. So even if you're using half the port, it was 10 to $20 a megabit to use that port or whatever. So, but the idea was is that you would, sort of reduce your latency and have better performance and also see more of the internet for your either your content or if you're an ISP and such. And for for what it's worth, just to chime in here, for anyone who wants to dig into the history of peering and how it all happened, a great resource is Bill Norton's book, William B. Norton's book called The Internet Peering Playbook. And it's chapter eight that speaks to the history of peering and the history of how all that got started. I, I actually make that chapter a prerequisite read for any new employee that works that works with us at Open Spectrum. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, no, Bill's 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 got a great book on that. It's it's a rather arcane technology, so hence there's not that many references you could point to, but that that one's a very good reference to point. Because a lot of data centers saw the their own internet exchange as a not only a value add, but a profit margin. Um, they would restrict um, other exchanges from showing up in these in these data centers. So Equinix is being again more infamous for this kind of thing. You, a, another exchange would not be able to show up and be able to make these cross connects or 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 be able to offer their services in an Equinix facility. Fortunately, there's other data centers. There's DuPont Fabris, there's Digital Realty, there's Hurricane Electric. There's a, there's a bunch of them out there that are much more progressive or open in the fact that they understand that they don't want to run their own data, their, their own internet exchange. And there's other people that can do that, and that there's value add in that 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 will attract people to a data center. When we were starting to realize that there was a problem, and we didn't want to pay you know, $5, $20 a megabit because of, of uh, the pricing for places like Equinix and such. What happened is we saw at that in those early days, um, there was a lot of sort of nonprofit or not-for-profit entities that were springing up in Europe. Um, DKIX, which was um, in, in Frankfurt, or AM6, which is in Amsterdam, or eventually Lynx, which is in London, um, are good examples of of early not-for-profit or non-profit uh, internet exchanges. And, of course, they've turned into uh, giant behemoths at this point because they started early and people, a lot of people connect to them. And so we wanted to be able to sort of mimic that. Um, and in early days, I mean, just before, even before us, there was, a, there was a non-profit called the Seattle Internet Exchange 
that also patterned themselves after M6 and D-Kicks and such, except they wanted to be able to be a little bit more scrappy. They didn't want to be as much as commercial. <clears throat> so they've established themselves in Seattle, and it's a lot of it is volunteered. Um, a lot of it is donated and things like that. It's not run quite as formalized as D-Kicks or, or M6 or whatever. Um, and we thought that San Francisco really was in need of an internet exchange. I mean, the only one that really was viable at that point was Equinix. Uh, and there was a lot of data centers here that didn't have any internet exchange at all. So through donations, um, we were able to get a, um, a Cisco 6500 from a company called G&I. Uh, and uh, we were able to put an, an early exchange in 365 Main in San Francisco. And that was the start of SFNEX, was that 6500 that was sitting there. And they they offered free cross-connects to anybody that would show up. They can get one free copper cross-connect up to a gig to exchange, uh, to connect to our 6500 that we ran there. Gotcha. And that, that exists today, right? You, you're still operating well, and running that? We're, we're, the, the switch has been replaced. 6509s are one very power hungry and they're really crufty and uh, they really don't support 10 gig very well. So that box has been switched out. We, we mainly are using um, uh, cumulus switches primarily. So we support 10 gig and 40 gig ports um, and typically optical. Um, and so that 6500 was finally retired. I think it was in somebody's bathroom when I last saw it with a coffee cup on top of it. And we are now using one U, you know, 48 port, 10 gig and 40 gig switches. How many carriers are sitting in that exchange? Well, 365 is kind of an oddball um, in the fact that there's a lot of content providers there, but there's not a lot of transfer providers there. Um, there's other data centers that are actually much better for that. Um, so. That was actually a little bit of a problem in the fact that we we actually had to um, uh, we didn't have that many people connect. So for almost eight years or so, we only had probably about a half a dozen or a dozen people actually connecting to that switch, um, and it was it was fine. It, it was kind of low profile, and we knew we really wanted to be at two hundred Paul because that is where most of the carriers come in. Uh, that's where we had large content providers. So, for instance, Facebook was in there, Interarchive was in there, Justin TV was in there, Twitch is in there, things like that. Um, and we knew that that was actually the place to be. But really, in order for us to do that, we had to work out a deal with the cross-connect provider. So, um, in many places, like Digital Realty Trust or DRT, um, they outsourced the management of CrossConnect to a company called Telex, T-E-L-X. And um, so we had, it took us what, about four or five years to get through all the hurdles for them to finally realize the value of providing space for us to be able to put a switch in there. And we actually had another 60, uh, 6509 that we had queued up that was sitting on, on a pallet for several years until finally... Telex said yes, and we were able to move that switch into one of the cabinets at 200 Paul. Um, I think we ended up using it for all of about a year or something like that, and then we finally pulled that box out and moved it over to, uh, again, these 1U cumulative switches that we have in there now. 
Yeah, it's an it's an interesting point to make, um, and I know that. So for for those listeners who uh, most are probably familiar with the name of Telex, but Telex has or had a contract. They're now bought out by Digital Realty, but the contract that they had made them the exclusive Meet Me Room provider and specific digital uh, realty facilities, which made it difficult for people like SFMEX yourself and some of our own clients when we were at United Layer to do some of the things that they wanted to do from a connectivity and interconnection standpoint. Uh, so there were a couple um, interesting ways that, let's just say, the tenants of Digital Realty were trying to get around that reality. Uh, the exclusionary, you know, all our only purpose is to manage a meet me room, and we we have contractual relations such that any and all connections have to come through a specific piece of the building. Um, make financial sense for the person who holds that contract as the meet me room provider. But um, what I've witnessed in the industry is that it it almost gives that company a um, What's the well, they're, they're a single they're a single source and they're a monopoly of that service, and so they can ask for any rate that they really want to, right? On those cross connects, so it's not uncommon to see you getting charged three hundred to four hundred dollars per cross connect per month, mm-hmm. uh, and so that becomes a significant factor to your your cost of goods or your operation. Uh, is the cross connect that you're having to go through. And at one point in time, uh, before Telex came in, it was free cross connects. It was, you know, the data center um, realized their, you know, it was originally a company called eExchange that had had the site before digital reality. And they were really trying to make it attractive for people to move in there. So they made free cross connects. They also provided free, uh, infrastructure for transfer providers and layer one providers, you know, people who provided fiber into that facility because they were trying to attract business. They were trying to attract the Twitch, the Justin TVs and things like that to pay for services at those locations. By cutting a deal with Telex um, and having them the only source that you can do cross connects ended up being kind of a bad deal for the people in that space because, again, that meant that Telex had basically carte blanche on what they could charge for those cross-connects. And Telex went through a number of purchases. So occasionally, you know, what would happen is they would go through a purchase and they would base their purchase price or the value of the company on their revenue stream. And, of course, now, when they sell it to a new company, they have a large debt service, so they're very, very dependent on that revenue that's coming in from from those cross connects. So there's no way to sort of back out of that or reduce those costs because they're, that's the revenue that's paying the debt service from the new company that they've just sold it to. And they went through a couple of those transitions, and of course, eventually being sold to, to uh, Digital Reality. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting story, and I think what's also interesting for uh, the listeners to understand is the model of that interconnection room being a private enterprise, for-profit enterprise, is a little bit different. I mean, it's definitely evolving here in the United States, uh, but even the, the peering fabric and the peering exchange inside certain facilities in the United States, you know, primarily the the CoreSight NE2, the the Telex. Um, 
peering exchanges and the Equinix peering exchanges that cost, you know, charge similar cross-connect fees just to participate. That model is a little bit different. I know within how you manage SF Mix as well as, uh, which follows a similar model to how most of the European internet exchanges operate, um, like Lynx and Amsix and and whatnot. Maybe you could speak a little bit to that. Um, I mean, yeah, there's kind of like there's three sort of layers to internet exchanges. There's the there's the single source exchange, like again Equinix, um, where you really don't have any other company to be able to connect to in those locations. Um, there's the not for profit but very large behemoths that you know DKIX and Links and uh, Am6 have sort of like morphed into. Uh, and they are they're actually just have more money than God sometimes, and so therefore they're going out and spending a lot of money on deployments and expanding their infrastructure. Originally, we thought AMP six would be pretty happy with just serving you know Amsterdam and and Europe and such. but um a couple of years ago, they started moving into uh, placing exchanges in places like three sixty five bean and things like that. Um, it, they're still not cheap to plug into, but they're less less costly than, you know, Equinix and such. But it's it's an interesting model, and so it would be interesting to see how DKIX and AMSIX continue to be sustainable the way that they're they're deploying their stuff at this point. I suspect they'll survive, but I think that they're going to probably keep expanding, and then they'll have to probably shrink back a little bit. There's also there's us, which is a little scrappy. We're actually a 501c. 12 exchange, I mean, are, are registered with the IRS and, and uh, we're under that nonprofit scheme. And there, it's, it's kind of all volunteer, and that's more like the Seattle Internet Exchange and such. It's, you know, we're pushing a bit of traffic, but nothing near what Seattle does. Seattle does, I think, about a half a peta bit or so. Uh, or, I mean, they're, they're, pushing, they're pushing way beyond gigs. Uh, than than us, um, so they're pretty pretty well established and such. Um, you're seeing a lot of the little guys like us being popped up. I mean, originally there was an Atlanta Internet Exchange, and I think that got got gobbled up by Telex. There's a, a new exchange in Tahoe called the Tahoe Internet Exchange, um, and there's little exchanges like uh, Toronto, which is Torex and such. So those should be supported. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that even though they're a little nonprofit that uh, that has minimal income through it, that they aren't viable for being able to push your packets through. I think they're they're just as viable. In fact, I would probably support them more um, in the fact that they are you're getting a bigger bang for the buck, and you're actually supporting a, a community that is really interested in making sure that the internet is a better place. Yeah, amen to that, and uh, that's in part why I spent. A couple days last week in D.C. with a handful of the um, people who run the different companies that you just mentioned lobbying on behalf of of our industry. And what what I have found um, is that the key key piece here of our lobbying is really just education. Because what we're finding is if legislators truly just understood the the nuts and bolts of how this stuff works, they could be equipped to make more informed and better decisions. And so a lot of what we're really doing is just trying to educate and just focus on here's how this stuff really works. We know we know you just heard from AT&T and Comcast 
uh, and you know some of the other Verizon, uh, their perspective on why why things need to be in place to benefit them specifically. Uh, but here's how the entire ecosystem works, and here's this middle layer that makes the internet operate, and it's the millions of jobs that sit between the physical uh, pipes and the end user customer who's sitting in front of their laptop. It's all those companies that make it work that need to have a voice. And so that's where the Internet Infrastructure Coalition comes in and why I'm, I'm proud to be part of that. But to your point, a lot of those smaller companies that don't have that visibility uh, and don't have massive you know, revenues simply don't have a voice by proxy because people are so entrenched in their business making money and just trying to survive and, and you know, do good work that they don't think to spend the time in D.C. And as a result... The large telecommunication providers, who you know, for the most part, they're not—they're not all trying to do horrible, evil things. Um, but uh, it, it provides the I2C provides them a voice and a uh, a chance to have a seat at the table with some of the decision makers. So I, I'll get off my my soapbox and my rant here about the I2C. But um, I appreciated your your point about why those exchanges exist and and why we should be supporting them and in addition to that uh if anyone wants to dig further into peering and how peering operates and works um you know please for the love of god reach out to to someone like Tim who's you know I'll have his uh information in the show notes uh there's also a great book if you want to dig into some specifics of it called the internet peering playbook which i mentioned earlier that William Norton wrote it's uh it's a thick book. It's about 355 pages, but it will teach you everything you need to know about the nuts and bolts of peering and why peering exists and the economic benefits and the engineering behind it all. Um, so I encourage you guys to dig into that. Uh, but Tim, yeah. There's, there's an article it. that uh, John Markoff wrote in the New York Times about um, our exchange and me um, back in 2010. I'll forward it on to you too as well, where he tries to describe why Internet exchanges are, are out there and how we're changing the, the shape of the Internet, as he calls it. Yeah, we'll definitely add that into the show notes. So, Tim, I have a couple questions here before we, we let go of one another for now. The first of which is, what happens to be the backdrop of your, your computer or your laptop right now? Uh, let me see. Actually, I have to close all these windows. Hold on. <laughs> um, it was the French uh, testing of the on one of the atolls of uh, a nuclear bomb, because it just looks so pretty and wow. so ominous when it starts at one point. Uh, let me see what I have on the background right now. Oh, it's just the standard uh, Mac <laughs> uh, pictures of the Sierras at this point. So, but it, it was, it was, a, it wasn't a bikini, it was, it was another atoll. It was this rather large mushroom cloud that was there. I, ha- <laughs> I have this affinity for Cold War technology and just, Seeing how amazing it was, and how in, how in, inventive it was, and how much idiocy was happening at, at how we were developing this stuff without much thought in the technology, um, and I see a lot of the parallels between that and how we're doing the internet today. Um, I came in doing the internet thinking that this is going to be a great way of having democratic communications where every every voice could be heard, but we're also seeing it implemented in ways that actually are to a detriment to us and such. So we've got to figure out a way 
what's what's the compromise? So it's an it's, it's an interesting analogy between the Cold War technology and the internet today. Yeah, and maybe we can jump back on the line and have that conversation, and maybe add a couple players because I'm sure this is more than just a one-on-one conversation. I'm curious to see what some other people have seen the evolution of the internet, what their perspectives are. Sure. So, Tim, what is some advice that you would give someone who's fresh into our world of of data centers and internet exchanges and whatnot? If someone's fresh off the boat or they're coming into the industry, they're they're young and hungry or they're coming from a different industry, what what would you tell someone? Well, data centers are still critical infrastructure, even though that... Um, uh, I'll tell you, my last company, we I used... Uh, probably a quarter rack at one point, the last company that I was at, which is a company called Sandor, where we actually had some presence in actual data center. Most of the infrastructure that we worked on, because we were a startup, was AWS. Um, and so, um, and it's, that's kind of the the downside, if you were trying to, you know, if you decided I wanted to start a data center, you're having to compete with, with the cloud infrastructure because it's very seductive in not having to pay the capex and such, but um, there's a point where really using cloud doesn't make sense, in, or at least economic sense, because you're paying a premium for that. Um, getting into an interning or or starting to work as kind of like a tech or something else like that, and being able to see the ins and outs, the politics, the number of players, how many people you actually have to go through to be able to get across connect from one point to a data center to another point of a data center. What's the cost? My you know, when I was running data centers, I didn't realize ninety or excuse me, seventy percent of my cost was just gonna be power and as opposed to the real estate itself or the infrastructure. Um so just getting up to speed and getting getting some dump from the the old timers and understanding this. Of course, you know, like for instance the the power figure that I gave you, that's being challenged because there people are coming up with newer ways and more inventive ways of doing things like cooling, where you don't have to pay for a watt of cooling for every watt that a server produces. Um, so getting, getting it, you know, interning or getting involved and start start talking to the folks that are running these data centers to, to understand the complexities. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. That's one of the things that I tell all the people that go through our training is that they need to spend time with the facilities manager uh, that works at their local data center and just pick their brain and put them in front of a whiteboard. That's that's what helped me immensely when I got started in the industry is just bringing in the the experts such as yourself. I don't know if you remember, but Pete Sclafani and me and and Richard having you just sit in front of a whiteboard for hours on end explaining <laughs> explaining how this stuff actually worked. It's uh, it's it gets a little complicated. It's not just a big building with uh, fiber and power. It's a little more involved now. Uh, well, Tim, I truly want to sit and talk to you for hours, and maybe we can do that at a future time over a couple glasses of wine next time I'm in, in the Bay Area. But sure. um, I have one last question for you that I've, I try to ask as many of the guests that come on that I when I remember. Uh, but do you love data centers? <laughs> uh, I, I do, in the fact, well, I mean, I mean uh, we're sitting inside of them. That's a mixed fabric that we're running. Uh, is certainly dependent on a data center. And we think that it's still a valuable resource and a valuable infrastructure that we need um, because there's people who still need to be able to put their servers and their hardwares in these locations. Um, You don't want to keep running it 
like in the early days where it's basically some office floor and uh, it's not a hardened facility and it's not um, it's not going to last. So going to a an appropriate provider like DRT or DuPont Papros or Hurricane or or Equinix or anybody else like that, there's a lot of value in that, particularly if you can do, and of course, this is the hammer and nail that I have, which is if you can find a place where you can find an appropriate internet exchange that you can get good connectivity out of. That's very sound, uh, sound acumen and advice there. I realize that I have one other question for you, which is how, how can people find you if they want to connect with you in the, uh, in the digital world? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, here's a quick plug. Uh, you can find us at twop.co, and that's Matt and I. And um, we are hired guns to go out and do due diligence all the way up to designing and deploying infrastructure for, again, enterprise to um, small to medium ISPs and such. So we have a number of clients like that. And let me just throw in there that I've I've seen the work that you've done in the past, especially in and around San Francisco, and a lot of the pro bono stuff that you've done, Tim. And you are a um, a wonderful humanitarian in the work that you do in trying to raise the uh, collective consciousness of the people around you into how all this stuff works. Which is part of the reason why I appreciate your friendship, and I'm so glad that you joined us. Um, and just bringing that type of connectivity. Access to those who may not have the means to afford the access is also something that I applaud you for. Um, and I, you. I know we didn't get to talk about that, but you, you know, I, I know that you have done a lot of that work and spent probably tens of thousands of hours working for the the best interest of those who don't have the means for to to gain that access. So thank you for that on their behalf. Um, for anyone, <laughs> anyone. You. Listening, hopefully you do can uh, or you can spend some time checking Tim out. We're going to put his uh, LinkedIn profile up as well and some links to the different organizations that he's a part of. So with that, Tim, thank you for being part of I Love Data Centers. Okay, thank you, Sean. Great to great to talk to you today. Back at you, man. We'll we'll talk soon. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. Mm-hmm.